The Word of Mouth podcast is brought to you by Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Imagine nationally ranked healthcare in your community. With convenient locations throughout northern New England, world-class providers are closer than you think. Visit dartmouthhitchcock.org to learn more. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is here. Word of Mouth. 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 This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and it's time for another edition of Civics 101, a podcast refresher course on some basics you may have forgotten or slept through in school. We try to find the right people to answer your questions about how our democracy works. You can submit those questions through our website, email or Twitter, or our listener line, which is how today's question came to us. Hey guys, this is Alan from Brooklyn, New York. I am a big fan of the show, and I would love to hear an episode about gerrymandering. All right, Alan, got you covered. Today's lesson is all about gerrymandering, how it works, when it started, and why it is so controversial. And our guide today is Nicholas Stephanopoulos, assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. He was a lawyer for plaintiffs in a federal court ruling that found remapping of Wisconsin's legislative districts to be unconstitutional. Nick, so glad you could be with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start with the basics. Gerrymandering is redistricting along party lines. So let's say we have a very tiny state. There are 50 people in it. 30 people belong to the blue party. 20 people belong to the red party. They live on either side in a nice, even grid. Blue's on one side, red's on the other. So what happens when that gets gerrymandered? So when you gerrymander, let's say the red party would uh, try to draw a whole bunch of districts that have, let's say, six red voters and four blue voters. And the red party for any remaining blue voters would uh, pack them into districts that are eight or nine or ten blue voters and zero, one or two red voters. The objective of the red party would be to make sure that uh, red party candidates get to win by relatively narrow margins. Uh, while blue party candidates end up winning by enormous, overwhelming margins. We call those two techniques uh, cracking and packing, and uh, they're the essence of how all partisan gerrymandering is carried out, uh, you know, wasting as much of the other side's vote as possible and uh, distributing your own side's voters as efficiently as possible across the different districts. So let me make sure I have this straight. The whole principle of the Constitution, one person, one vote. Gerrymandering would mean that you divide the district in a way that advantages you. Yeah, and so it's important to to understand that uh, gerrymandering can be consistent with respecting one person, one vote. Uh, You draw a whole bunch of districts, all of which have exactly the same population. So there's no one person, one vote problem. But one party is winning an awful lot of close districts, and uh, the other side is losing in all of those uh, closely contested districts. And meanwhile, the other side is winning all of its districts by enormous uh, supermajorities. So basically, one person, one vote involves differences in district population, whereas gerrymandering is all about manipulating the margins of victory in uh, different districts. How long has this been used? 
forever, really, you know, uh, as long as uh, American elections have been conducted, there have been allegations, many of them accurate, about gerrymandering. It's been obvious to line drawers uh, ever since the framing that depending on how you draw districts, you can manipulate the margins of victory and benefit one side or harm the other side. So it's not a new uh, phenomenon, although the technology that's now available to gerrymander is uh, much more sophisticated than was the case in previous periods. In fact, the term comes from the early 19th century. Tell us about the origins of this word, gerrymander. Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, Elbridge Gerry was uh, an early governor of Massachusetts, and uh, he was the driving force behind one of the original uh, partisan maps in American history for the Massachusetts state legislature in the early 1800s. And so one of the the districts in that map looked like a a salamander. Uh, And so the word salamander got linked with uh, the governor's name, Gary. And so Gary plus salamander eventually turned into gerrymander. And so thus the the name was born. And it's worth noting there, too, that that original gerrymander in Massachusetts both had weirdly shaped districts and also, really importantly, had a blatant numerical advantage for the governor's uh, party. So it wasn't just the weird districts that were the problem. It was that the weird districts were resulting in an unfair, asymmetric advantage for one side over the other side. So if you do look at maps now of gerrymandered districts, they are crazy shapes. You know, there's a tendril stretching and curling to include a little parcel across the state map, like a praying mantis or a salamander. It's clearly deliberate, but it sounds like a dirty word, gerrymandering, or it's become that way. Is it always nefarious? Well, it depends who you ask. I would say from a a good government, uh, small-D democratic perspective, uh, it is always nefarious. One of the main goals of our democratic system is that uh, the will of the voters should translate uh, fairly and accurately into the uh, composition of the legislature and, in turn, into what laws are enacted by the legislature. And the whole purpose and effect of partisan gerrymandering is to interfere with that accurate translation of the will of the voters. You know, the whole point of it is to give one party an unfair advantage in how its popular support translates into uh, seats in the legislature and uh, then policies enacted. You know, that being said, there's obviously differences of degree with partisan gerrymandering. And so Uh, more severe, more extreme gerrymanders are more problematic than more minor uh, or more subtle uh, gerrymanders. Uh, But I do think that the the very practice of partisan gerrymandering is an offense to uh, basic democratic values. So who decides how these districts are drawn? So that varies from state to state. But in general, a new district map is just like any other law. And so it has to be passed by uh, the state legislature and then signed by the governor. So in general, it's just the, um, the elected branches of the state government that choose what districts will look like. The elected branches are the people in power, so one party or another is often favored. Uh, exactly. So you know, very, very often a single party will have uh, complete control of the state government in a given state. 
And so in that circumstance, that party gets to choose what the district lines will look like. So it's not a surprise that when a single party has full control over redistricting, that the party will often give itself a big advantage. And late last year, a federal court struck down Wisconsin's legislative districts, charging them with being unconstitutional, gerrymandered to favor Republicans in this case. Similar case in North Carolina, also in Virginia. Now, what do they say makes this unconstitutional? So the test that uh, that we proposed in Wisconsin uh, and that the court adopted in the Wisconsin case has uh, three parts. The first part is that plaintiffs have to prove that a map was drawn with the intent of benefiting a particular party. The second part is that uh, plaintiffs have to show that a map actually has a uh, big discriminatory partisan effect in favor of the party that drew the map. And the third part of the test is that there has to be no uh, neutral or legitimate justification for this big partisan discrepancy. So the the partisan effect can't simply be the product of the uh, political geography of the state, for example. Uh, And so in Wisconsin, the court found that all three elements of that test were satisfied. And that combination of factors is what led the court to strike down the Wisconsin map. Well, this is Democrats bringing this, this gerrymandering case in front of federal courts in Wisconsin. But Republicans have made similar arguments in Illinois against Democrats. Can we fairly say that gerrymandering favors one party or the other? So it's clear that both sides, when they're in control of the state government, are uh, very happy to engage in partisan gerrymandering. And in both the current cycle and in previous decades, Uh, There have been any number of cases where Democrats have been just as ruthless and as aggressive in partisan gerrymandering as Republicans. That being said, in 2011, when all of the current cycles maps were drawn, Republicans happened to be in control of a lot more state governments than Democrats. And so Democrats absolutely tried to gerrymander in Illinois, uh, in Maryland, in Rhode Island, uh, in other states where they had control. But Republicans happen to control many more states. And so at the moment, there are a lot more Republican gerrymanders than there are Democratic gerrymanders. But that's just a function of the uh, distribution of party control this decade. It doesn't necessarily hold for uh, other points in time. You said in 2011. Is there a particular time when districts are redrawn? Uh, Yeah, typically districts are redrawn after the most recent census. And so the census takes place every 10 years, and uh, shortly after the census is when every state and every county and every city uh, in the country has to redraw their district lines in order to achieve equal population among the districts. The next round of redistricting is going to happen in 2021 after we get the returns from the 2020 census. So I've seen arguments that gerrymandering has, if not created, certainly aided and abetted polarization in Congress. Fair point? The relationship between gerrymandering and polarization is uh, complicated and kind of ambiguous. Uh, And we know this, for example, because the Senate is not gerrymandered by definition. You know, all senators are elected from uh, states, not from districts. And yet the Senate is uh, almost as polarized as the U.S. House. 
So, you know, how much of a polarizing influence could gerrymandering play, given that the Senate is almost equally polarized with the House? It's possible that in some circumstances, some kinds of redistricting may affect polarization. But uh, I don't think the evidence we have suggests that redistricting is a, a major driver of polarization. The real drivers of polarization are probably just people's attitudes, uh, polarizing and uh, representatives reflecting the, the greater polarization of the electorate itself. I've also read arguments advocating for redistricting to be done by algorithms, so untouched by human hands. Would that take the politics out of redistricting? Uh, well, it depends on how exactly you did the algorithm. So if you, if you told an algorithm, just draw me a bunch of circular districts, uh, it's quite possible you'd end up with an unintentional gerrymander. You know, if, if all you focused on was the shapes of the districts, you still might end up um, inadvertently significantly favoring or, or disfavoring one side or another. However, these days you can also enter electoral requirements into the algorithm. So if you told the algorithm, draw me districts that are circular, that respect towns and counties, and that don't benefit or disadvantage either party by more than a certain amount, then an algorithm could uh, potentially fully take politics out of redistricting. So in that case, you would have neither uh, political motive, nor would you have a significant electoral advantage or disadvantage for either side because you'd program the algorithm not to produce such an advantage or disadvantage. So, Professor Stephanopoulos, we as civic students, what do you think is the most important thing we take away about gerrymandering? That it's one of the biggest undemocratic features of modern American politics that it's responsible for uh, dramatic distortions of political outcomes at both the state level and the federal level and the local level around the country. And that if we're going to really fix American democracy and improve American democracy, solving the problem of gerrymandering is one of the very most important things for us to do in uh, every state and every uh, locality in the country. Nick Stephanopoulos, professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment is the most well-known breach of medical ethics in U.S. history. The infamous study observed untreated syphilis in hundreds of rural African-American men who were being given placebos. The 40-year-long experiment ended after being exposed by a whistleblower in 1972. About a decade after the Tuskegee test launched, researchers began an even more egregious syphilis and gonorrhea experiment on unsuspecting people in Guatemala. Today, some of those subjects are in their 90s, chronically in pain, and have filed suit for damages. They, their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who've inherited their disease are still in need of help. Sushma Subramanian is a science and health journalist who wrote for Slate about the legacy of research methods far worse than Tuskegee. Sushma, welcome to Word of Mouth. Thank you. 
Your article has a timeline of the variety of gonorrhea and syphilis experiments early in the 20th century. There was a real push around World War II. Why were they so fixated on it at that time? Think about these diseases as the AIDS of their time. Many members of the military were dying or spending a lot of time in the hospital because they contracted syphilis and gonorrhea. So researchers were really keen to figure out um, ways to prevent or to cure the disease. At the same time, penicillin was beginning to emerge as a possible answer, um, and it was becoming more and more widely accepted as the treatment protocol for these diseases. But even as it was proving effective, there were still a lot of things that had to be worked out about it. The main one was that if someone had sexual contact, could you use penicillin to prevent them from contracting the disease, or could it only be used um, after someone had contracted the disease as a cure? So in order to understand those questions better, there were already a number of people who were infected subjects here in the U.S. Why did researchers go to Guatemala? So there was a predecessor to the Guatemala research, and that was done at a federal prison in Indiana. Um, And there they had exposed prisoners to the disease by applying bacteria to their genitals, not through sexual intercourse, um, because it was illegal in the United States. And actually the experiment turned out to be mostly a bust because they weren't able to consistently transmit the disease that way, and they thought they might have... um, better luck if they tried to transmit it through sexual intercourse. And that's what they were able to do in Guatemala. Um, They had a relationship with a Guatemalan physician who was working in the U.S., and he suggested that Guatemala would be a good place to do this testing. And the reason was that sex work was legal, so prostitutes could be used uh, to transmit the disease, and also that these prostitutes were required to go for regular health inspections. So it was a good research control environment. So I want to go back to that bit where you said they exposed prisoners to disease. This is the worse than Tuskegee point. Whereas rural Alabama men were already infected in the Tuskegee studies and just not treated, even though they were told they were, in Guatemala they were actually infecting people. Who was infected and how? Yes. So this did start in the United States. um, And researchers knew that the ethics of this were quite questionable, and that if this research became known to the public, then people might have a serious problem with it. So in the United States, um, it was considered really important that people be informed about it and properly consent to the research. Um, And so that's how it was done here. In Guatemala, the research was first started with uh, soldiers in the army, and um, later in a prison and an insane asylum. In that context, what they found um, was that people had a hard time understanding what's happening to them. They were having a hard time understanding the research. And so correspondences show that they eventually just decided that informed consent wasn't necessary Mm. in those cases. So they actually infected with syringes in some cases, uh, other exposure, more brutal and more aggressive exposure of prostitutes, servicemen, prisoners, uh, patients at psychiatric hospitals. What did these experiments reveal? Actually, the research ended up not being that useful. The first step was in the Army, and uh, they exposed soldiers through um, sexual intercourse. And just like what had occurred at the prison in Indiana, 
uh, they found that they weren't able to um, regularly infect people with the disease. And so in Indiana, that's what eventually made them give up on the experiment. But in Guatemala, instead, uh, the researchers on it moved on to more extreme measures. And like you said, they started injecting subjects with the bacteria. They placed bacteria in their eyes. Sometimes they scraped their genitals and dressed their injuries with the diseased material. So it was really, really gruesome. And that did get more people to contract the disease, but it wasn't with the regularity that would be expected. And by the time that they were doing this, they kind of realized that they had to wrap up the experiment. So they were never able to test the prophylaxis like they wanted. This happened 70 years ago in Guatemala. How many of those infected are still alive? Not many of them are still alive, um, but who is alive are family members who have contracted the, the disease from subjects who were initially exposed by the U.S. government. Mm. Um, so I met a family in Guatemala, the family of Frederico Ramos, and when he was 22, he was asked to serve in the country's military. He has memories of being injected with a disease, although it's been many years since then. He's now in his 90s, and so his memory is a little bit fuzzy on that. But soon after he returned to his small village um, and started a family, he started having problems with uh, burning during urination. He never really made the connection to the U.S. government experiment, um, but he also found that his family down the line started having problems as well. His son also had problems burning during urination. And his son's children had problems with their joints really aching. And there were members of his family who uh, were experiencing blindness. So the effects of the gonorrhea that later Ramos, you know, after this was exposed, he came to believe that the U.S. government was responsible for it. The effects of it seemed to grow worse down the generations. We're speaking with Sushma Subramanian, who wrote Worse Than Tuskegee for Slate magazine. It's the story of how 70 years ago, American researchers infected Guatemalans with syphilis and gonorrhea for experimental purposes and then left them without help. Sushma, how was all of this discovered and when? It was only discovered in 2003, and a woman named Susan Reverby, um, who's a historian at Wellesley College, she was at the library uh, for the University of Pittsburgh looking up Thomas Perron, who had been Surgeon General prior to and during the start of the Tuskegee syphilis study. And a librarian there also said that there were papers related to John Charles Cutler, who had been involved in the Guatemala study. Reverby knew about him because she had been studying Tuskegee for a long time and knew that he was involved in that research in the 50s. But she had never heard about the Guatemala study until she looked at his papers and found that the dossier was mostly the Guatemala material, and that had never been really revealed publicly before. In fact, do we know whether it was done in secret, given the questions of legality or ethics of the testing at that time? There were definitely a lot of correspondences at the time that indicated that people knew that the ethics were questionable and that 
they should maintain a certain level of secrecy around the project. And actually, the final report was never peer-reviewed. Um, and so they knew that there shouldn't be a lot of eyes on the research, um, but I can't say that it was kind of kept from the public because it was in this library that had been holding it for a while. And when was this again, Sushma? This was in 2003. So since then, have there been attempts for reparations for affected families? And, and who are the actual defendants in this? Is it the U.S. government that sponsored this research? The U.S. government did sponsor this research, but the question about reparations is pretty tricky. So there have been several lawsuits to help the families who were affected. And the first was against agencies of the U.S. government that had been involved in funding and approving this research. But that case was dismissed under a principle called sovereign immunity. And sovereign immunity is based on this English concept that the king can do no wrong. Um, it's something that the U.S. government also uses. It's kind of a way to protect public money. So when that lawsuit failed, the next was a lawsuit against the private industries that were in different ways involved in the study. Um, those are namely Johns Hopkins, Rockefeller Foundation, and the pharmaceutical company Bristol-Myers Squibb. And that's an ongoing lawsuit, and it's likely going to take a while. And there are a lot of kind of big questions that could affect future case law. Hmm. And these are, you know, can a few employees who are acting on the behalf of other entities, like in the example of Johns Hopkins, these were professors at Johns Hopkins who were also on government study boards. Should Johns Hopkins be liable for their work um, on behalf of another agency? And then there's the question of how long should these private industries be held liable since it's been so many years? It really is quite a thicket and a complicated picture. But what does it reveal to us about the state of medical testing? I mean, this sounds like a case from another era, you know, back in the mid-20th century. What do we know about whether this could happen again? Right. And that's a really important question. So the developing world, when this study was conducted, was not a place where the U.S. conducted the majority of its research. At the time, a lot of research was conducted in the U.S. at mental hospitals and prisons. But now, a lot of our research is done in the developing world. A 2009 study um, showed that more than one-third of the trials sponsored by the 20 largest U.S.-based pharmaceutical companies is actually being conducted outside of the United States. And these are countries where the rules around ethics are often less strictly enforced. I think we can't assume safely that the United States and companies based here don't do research like this anymore. So it's important to take a case like Guatemala seriously. We need to establish a clear set of rules to make sure that we apply research ethics in the same way in other countries as we do here and with the proper oversight and also that we have a system to compensate people when they're harmed by this research. So saying to the Guatemalan victims of this research that the U.S. isn't going to do anything about it, that sets a really bad precedent. And the message that we need to send isn't just that Guatemala was a horrible one-off incident, but we need to be really vigilant about the possibility of something like this happening again. Sushma, it's such a thorough job you did reporting this. Thank you very much for speaking with us about it. Thank you.
Sushma Subramanian. She's a science and health journalist, and she wrote Worse Than Tuskegee for Slate. It's a story about the Guatemalan gonorrhea and syphilis experiments of the 1940s conducted under the auspices of the United States. There's a link to read her piece at our website, wordofmouthradio.org. Thanks so much for your listening time today. Music in this episode came to us from Broke for Free, Franco Luzzi, Mon Plaisir, Blue Dot Session, and La Venganza de Chitara. I'm Virginia Prescott. We'll be back tomorrow, too, here on NHPR. Mm-hmm.